0: Well, a very, very warm welcome, everybody, to this latest uh, Social Contract Research Network Zoom seminar. Uh, And it is my uh, distinct pleasure uh, this Melbourne evening to be able to uh, welcome uh, a colleague from whom I've I've learned so much over the previous months. Um, uh, It's Mark Somos uh, from the Max Planck Institute for Comparative Public Law and International Law. To anyone even mildly familiar uh, with the recent study on the state of nature, uh, Mark needs no introduction at all. Uh, But uh, for the benefit of others, let me just mention briefly that he is the author of uh, American States of Nature, The Origins of Independence, 1761 to 1775, uh, that came out in 2019 uh, with Oxford. And he's the co-editor with Ann Peters, Uh, of uh, uh, the book The State of Nature Colon Histories of an Idea uh, that came out, uh, I think, uh, just last year uh, with Brill. Uh, And I'm particularly uh, excited and expectant, I guess, this this evening because uh, the the title of Mark's um, paper uh, really gets to the heart, I think, of a lot of what is at stake in the study and understanding of the state of nature today. Uh, which is is precisely what status to accord this state of nature Um, the the literature around Hobbes and around Locke and around Rousseau around all the state of nature theorists um, uh, is sort of a pitched battle in many ways between those who think that the state of nature is fundamentally empirical and historical and these writers are referring to something that, that they think actually happened uh, and those who who say, no, no, no that's a misunderstanding, it's, it's primarily hypothetical. And they're using the state of nature as a thought experiment. And there are many different nuances and, and, and ways of passing out those um, uh, those differences. Um, and I, and I, I think Mark's title speaks to a very particular way of intervening in those debates. And I think a really crucial one as well. Uh, both for our understanding of the the state of nature as a historical artifact, but also the way in which it it continues to shape and has the potential to shape our thinking and our action today. Uh, And so Mark's uh, title uh, is going to be The State of Nature, The Meanings and Promise of a Legal Fiction. Uh, So please join me uh, as I ask Mark to to unmute himself. Please join me uh, in welcoming uh, our uh, speaker for this session, Mark Summers.
1: Thank you very much. It's a privilege to to be part of this series. And I'd like to talk about one of my state of nature projects in detail, and about two others very briefly. I will try to show that the two things that my three projects have in common are that they bring out uses of the state of nature as effective legal fiction and the tremendous but underestimated importance of the state of nature theme for both intellectual history and and for the shape of the world that we still live in. And for a wonderful overview of the ways in which the state of nature topic still matters to us today, not only in law, I refer you to Chris's podcast and YouTube video from last August, which I think really captured the whole range better than any other source I've seen. A few projects, the one on the American state of nature, that I will discuss in detail, and an edited volume on the state of nature and a chapter on Samuel Puffendorf that I'll touch on briefly simply illustrate the importance of the value added by the Social Contract Research Seminar and its series on the state of nature. And I'm confident that this project unfolds to shed bright new light on many vital topics in ethics, theology and my own field, constitutional and international law. So, without further ado, let me start with American States of Nature. The central claim of this project is that we have forgotten one of the most important parts of the American funding. The State of Nature was as important as liberty or property for revolutionary ideology and for early and enduring constitutional design. I'll try to show its role and its implications for the way we live now. In this case, we are brief opportunity to describe what I mean by effective legal fiction. I greatly enjoyed learning the rudiments of mathematics and economics, and particularly loved the part when professors would say, let X equal X, or let us assume that no other variable changes in an economic system. Let us bracket uh, a couple of concepts and a couple of processes in order to get to the heart of the matter. And when I started studying law, it became quickly obvious that there are, there's a unique subgroup of legal concepts that were designed to accomplish something in the real world. They are not analytical, they are not adversarial so much. They are similar to the, to the template of God saying, let there be light. At some point, a couple of lawyers got together in the 17th century and said, let there be joint liability companies. Let there be such a thing. And through these legal innovations that are not merely tinkering on the edges, but actually create something original, they continue to influence the world that we live in today. The state of nature is not just an illegal concept, it is an effective legal fiction. For the American State of Nature project, I will try to show the role of the state of nature and its implications for the way we read now. But I should say that I'm an American citizen, and I'm not only directly affected by misreadings and misrepresentations of the American state of nature, tradition, which I'll discuss at the end. But i also taught for 16 years courses on human rights, on the history of human rights at US law schools and political science departments. So with the students, we'd read Aquinas and Hobbes and Locke and Rousseau and Vattel. The move to the American Revolution and the founding period before continuing, continuing with Kant, usually up to Rawls. For the American Revolution founding, I'd be hard pressed to assign a key primary source that didn't talk clearly and often about the state of nature. But in contrast with the secondary literature on Hobbes, Rousseau, or Kant, scholarly works on, on American legal history had nothing to say about the state of nature. It's quite astonishing. See, for instance, The chief reference books, companion to American legal history, or the Cambridge History of Law in America, or any of the reference books or specialist books by Bailey, or Woods, or Reed, or William Nelson, and so on and so forth—all the greats of American legal history—fail to discuss the concept. And the strange missing piece that I couldn't explain to my students is what drove me to ten years of archival research for this book. The fact is the revolution used the phrase state of nature thousands of times. They used it to claim a set of fundamental rights. The right to protest, representation, resistance, property, life, freedom of conscience, of speech, assembly, and self-defense. They debated whether the state of nature was a condition of war or sin or tolerance or sociability, benevolence, and true religion, or a rich interaction of individuals and states following moral and natural laws. In these debates, the revolutionary generation forged a shared and original meaning of the state of nature unique to them, and later adopted in Europe, France, Germany, Italy, and so on and so forth, even Switzerland, Latin America, and where other people looked to the American Revolution for inspiration. It might be useful and hopefully funny to tell you about my book, Contract. That's the book and I still haven't exhausted the topic and I think it's appropriate to talk about it today because I keep thinking about it since it was published. Oxford gave me a contract to cover two and a half thousand years of the state of nature discourse, from Hesiod to Kant, with emphasis on the American Revolution. We then changed the scope to 1761 to 1820, for which I have completed the research before we narrowed the scope to 1761 to 1775, so 15, instead of two and a half thousand years, because I just found too much material that hasn't been published. And because of this, I also had to adjust my method. Instead of covering everything relevant to the state of nature, and accounting for the shifting meanings of terms, such as social contract or the natural condition of mankind and so forth, I focused exclusively on explicit invocations of the state of nature. So to track language and its meaning, I had to keep one of these variants or variables constant and ended up in a narrowly lexical, ground up reconstruction of of the American state of nature discourse. And I found that the period I covered fell quite compelling into four separate stages. In the first stage from 1761 to 1772, the state of nature referred to an independent source of rights to support grievances and demonstrations. In The second stage from 72 until 75, the colonists' meaning shifted to the state of nature as an inalienable right to self-defense that belongs to a natural community of colonists that was abandoned by Britain, but hasn't yet become independent. At this stage also saw a fierce contest over the meaning of the state of nature. Patriots defended this aforementioned sense, loyalists objected to it. They equated the state of nature with anarchy and chaos and murder. But strikingly, all sides, every colonist agreed the state of nature is such a radical concept that its invocation drastically reduces the possibility of any compromise with Britain, which is something the Patriots liked and the Loyalists didn't, but they both recognized this extraordinary character of the concept. The third stage from 1775 to 1789, the American state of, American state of nature concept is ubiquitous in constitution ma- making and consolidation. So both at the state and the federal level. There are reams and reams of extraordinary debates and drafts about writing new constitutions. The state of nature is is, features very prominently. And they also used it to counter the so-called degeneracy thesis, whereby Europeans argued that everything in America degenerates. And I'm happy to talk about this further because it's a fairly spectacular sub-discourse. In the fourth stage, From 1789 until 1811, uh, the state of nature was used for state building and image building, first and foremost, now that the young republic has become more confident of its powers. But the strict lexical approach I used is not new. Bernard Barin has done the same for corruption. Hamburger for natural rights, Balkin and Levinson for slavery, Stalin on on the prerogative, Lee on the natural born citizen, and more recent importance on, on executive power. I haven't seen a good one on, on the social contract yet. Wonderfully, the findings of some of these strictly lexical studies converge. For instance, in Steilin's 700 texts published between 1764 and 1788, the term prerogative was not used in Locke's sense and Steilin found that Blackstone's influence has also been overstated. In my work, shows, tries to show, that the American state of nature is not at all Lockean, and there was very little to Blackstone. For three reasons. Firstly, Locke and Blackstone do not provide for the aggregation of individual state of nature rights into an anti-political community, which becomes the dominant meaning of the state of nature in the first stage of the early American discourse. Second, when Lockean and Blackstone are used in colonial North America, they are often used to support the British Empire. Corporate propagandists and imperial officials habitually described America as a state of nature full of potential and promise. Thirdly, archival evidence shows that the colonists through many other thinkers than Locke or Blackstone. And long before Blackstone's commentary, there was an original sophisticated American state of nature discourse already in place. And one of the best sources for this is the, is the university archives for the old colonial universities. So Harvard, Yale, Princeton, called the College of New Jersey at the time, the College of Philadelphia, and and Columbia, New York. And they contain student notebooks and declamations and theses, which are often an extraordinary and underutilized resource. To give just one example, we find Francis Ellison, at the College of Philadelphia. One of the students of the great Francis Hutchison in Glasgow, and later tutor to the great revolutionary John Dickinson. Now, once he arrived in Philadelphia, Allison started teaching ethics and the rudiments of natural law. Like Hutchison, he criticized Hobbes and Buffendorf for exaggerating the inconvenience of the state of nature. Among friendly states and among friendly individuals, the state of nature can't even serve as a framework for sophisticated dispute settlement based on natural, not on civil rules. So Edison built this extraordinary super legal superstructure on the state of nature concept. You can summon arbitrators, you can appeal to equity, you can appeal to, to natural justice to settle fairly detailed controversies, legal controversies, and you don't need the state at all for any of this. And this one emerges from, from the student textbooks. What turned out to be the revolutionary generation was reading in school that the state of nature is a condition that would would not need to be abandoned for the polity if people remained friends and had a natural sense of justice. Incidentally the huge underused archives of student notebooks and dissertations also changed our understanding of the American reception of the Scottish Enlightenment. The student notebook shared by, th- by the three sons of Chief, Chief Justice William Allen, just kind of took over from the older brother and went back to school with a half, half empty notebook. Is now in the archives of the University of Pennsylvania. And it shows that already in 1760, Edison's students started incorporating texts by another student of Hutchison, namely Adam Smith, who was just finishing his theory of moral sentiments published in, in 1759. So that's almost a decade earlier than scholars think Smith, was re- Smith reached the colonies. The state of nature focus is, is a tremendously powerful torch into, into many corners of the, of, the, of the literature. What else did the revolutionary generation read in college? Berla Macquis Principles of Natural and Poetic Law was on the curricula. The 1748 and 1752 two, two translations were standard textbooks. In the Principles of Natural Law, Bölamaki writes, quote, the civil state doesn't destroy, but improve the state of nature, unquote. And far from replacing civil society, as Hobbes and Rousseau would have it, government gives, quote, the primitive state of union and society a new degree of force and consistency, unquote. So in this case, in in Bölamaki's early work, used as a textbook, the state amplifies and builds on the state of nature. It perfects and completes the the legal regime anchored in the state of nature. But in his later principles of political law, Berle state of nature is an idyllic condition of natural equality, but it cannot last. So as Montesquieu and Rousseau said, people cannot stay in the state of nature and need to exit into the polity that has a common arbiter. And because both Bellawaki texts were on the curricula, you find students figuring out the contradiction and engaging with the topic by by the mid 1750s, by by the early 1750s. Other sources from the 1750s also show a fascinating range. Thomas Pano was governor of Massachusetts from uh, 1757 until 1760, published in 1750 a treatise in which he criticizes Hobbes' state of nature He tries to address the colonist grievances and describes the British empire as a natural community in the state of nature, which is a fascinating position. And Hutchison was not successful in creating a compromise between the metropolis and the colonies, but when he tried to do so, the state of nature was his preferred method. In addition to these external sources, original American thought also began early, in a letter drafted in summer of 1759, the young John Adams conflates in a <laughs> thought experiment. I'll I, I try to share my screen because he's a great deal of fun. Adams was an inveterate and annotator and is often very, very funny. Sorry. He has annotations in Rousseau. And some of them say things like, Nothing but a paradox would do for a Frenchman. Just like wonderful, wonderful stuff. But in this particular case, he <laughs> he sets up a thought experiment doing both on Montesquieu and on Rousseau and on Hobbes that he writes up in detail in his diary. And this is just the annotation that that you see. The thought is this. What would happen if a child was isolated in a room and grew up to age 20, supplied with all necessities except for human contact? Would he feel powerless and weak and be frightened of everything when he finally left the room, as Montesquieu suggests? Or would Hobbes' state of nature apply if, quote, a whole army of persons trained up in this manner in single separate cells unquote were brought together and just let loose would they flee would they fight or feel sympathy and begin to collaborate what is real human nature and to get to the starting point Adams looks at the state of nature writings of Hobbes Montesquieu and Rousseau and tries to combine them and put them in and, and make them interrogate each other this is his annotations on Montesquieu. We're not going to talk very much about King George, but we have found out recently as his papers are released that he himself was writing original essays on the state of nature, which is, I think a very kingly, kingly underbar, much to be recommended. Now, there's some literature on the impact of Rousseau's social contract on American thought after the 1770s. Rossby Smith. I argue that Rousseau's influence began much earlier with the second discourse and the state of nature played a key role throughout Rousseau's American reception. And if you'd like an excellent account of the state of nature in Rousseau's works, both of these works, please see Chrissy's podcast and YouTube video from last September. Rousseau's 1755 second discourse was known in Boston by 1761. Readers also picked up the Social Contract soon after its English translation appeared in 1764. His 21st of February 1765 diary entry, Adams records a session of the Junto, the lawyers' reading club, that gathered around Jeremiah Gridley, where Adams mentioned Rousseau's condemnation of feudalism and praise of representation in the Social Contract, Chapter 15. Gridley, Gridley replied that. Quote, the observation, you quote, proves that Rousseau is shallow, unquote. Fortunately, the conversation didn't end here. These June two meetings became the source of Adams's four letters, later known as the Dissertation on the Canon and Feudal Law. In the second letter, first published in August 1765, Adams is citing the 1764 translation of the Social Contract as well. The letters were reprinted in the London Chronicle and had a profound influence in Britain. Why does it matter that the American state of nature began so early? Because Adams and almost every historian since believe that the so-called writs of assistance case started the revolution. But while Adams notes, historians have forgotten that this case was about the state of nature and it built on a solid foundation. In other words, almost every work on American legal history, misses the ideological foundation. Now to the case itself. George II died in October 1760. Writs of assistance had to be reissued under the new royal authority within six months. News of George's death reached Boston in December and a group of 63 merchants instructed Oxenbridge Thatcher and his grandfather James Otis Jr. to challenge the writs in court. The dispute is also known as Paxton's case after the British customs agent who obtained such a writ in 1755 and now filed a countersuit. What is his speech is lost, but a huge amount of literature is devoted to it. Most American legal, legal historians believe that it, it is the starting point of the American doctrine of judicial review, for instance. So it's an entirely separate branch of literature. But here is Adam's recollection of what is his speech from, from 1819 when he's advising a a former clerk of his who is writing a biography of Otis. And most historians disregard this account partly because they think Adam's memory is is faulty by by, by 1819. The first thing Adam says about this great Paxton case, Otis's great speech in in the cardinal, fundamental, pivotal of Paxton's case is that it's, it's a dissertation on the rights of men in a state of nature. Otis asserted that every man made in natural was an independent sovereign, subject to no law, but the law written on his heart and revealed to him by his maker in the constitution of his nature and the inspiration of his understanding and his conscience, his right to life, his liberty, and, so, and then snapping a club. This is, this is somewhat Lockean, but Rousseau could have been a source just as easily. Mixing in your labor and first possession, original possession. Nor were the poor Negroes forgotten. Not a Quaker in Philadelphia or Mr. Jefferson of Virginia ever asserted the rights of Negroes in stronger terms. Young as I was, the mature Adams remembers, and ignorant as I was, I shuddered at the doctrine he taught. And I have all my lifetime shuddered and still shudder at the consequences that may be drawn from such premises. Shall we say that the rights of masters and servants clash and can be decided only by force? I adore the idea of gradual abolitions, but who shall decide how fast or how slowly these abolitions should be made? You see the same thing again. The state of nature is such a powerful principle that it leaves little room for negotiation. It's, it's a fundamental principle upon which you can build rival legal claims that are going to be very difficult to reconcile if they disagree about the, the, the fundamental rule of the state of nature. Now, and Odyssey's speech is lost. Adams' abstract of Odyssey's speech has been stolen, was stolen. And historians have, have been trying to reconstruct the text for quite for quite some time. And I found it. So hooray for archives. This is the best, best version that exists. And it is catalogued at the American Philosophical Society as an unknown notebook. Belonging to someone called Alicia Thayer. You can see the, the, the TH briefly, which turned out to be an M. And I was able to show that this young man who died, who died very, very young was one of LMC's clerks. And he had access to those two LMC sources. Thus, the most uh, reliable and fullest reconstruction of this his speech, complete with references. And a great deal of the state of uh, a great deal of discussion about the state of nature. I tried to show so far the sophisticated state of nature argument against British encroachments existed in the colonies before Blackstone's 765 commentaries, and branded Grocer's Hobbes, Locke, Montesquieu, Watt, Rousseau, and other authorities, and the range of original American ideas. What well, is his next in Sandary Book? rejected four four common opinions concerning the original government. Otis says it can't be religion, it can't be force, it can't be contract, and it can't be property. What then is the original government? Citing and combining the language and imagery of Harrington's Oceana and Rousseau's social contract, Otis proposes an order both natural and mechanical that encompasses the planets, the attraction between the sexes, and the progression to complex societies. Then he does something shocking. He announces that the continuity of the British constitution, it's also tremendous imperial and national pride, is an illusion. The question he poses is, did the original contract provide for the massive gap and break between James II's abolition and the accession of William and Mary? By locating supreme power in parliament, during the Glorious Revolution? Or did Britain lapse into a state of nature and in constitutional terms, cease to exist and coasted until William and Mary uh, to the throne? What is heavily hints that the latter was the case. Therefore, Parliament in the 1760s had no perfect right to government either. Right. If on this memorable and very happy event, three kingdoms and the dominions fell back into the state of nature, it will be asked that every man and woman were not done equal. If so, had not every one of them a natural and equitable right to be consulted in the choice of a new king? Or in the formation of a new original compact or government, if any new form had been made, might not the nation at that time have rightfully changed the monarchy into a republic of any form? That might seem best. Could any change from the state of nature take place without the consent of the majority of the individuals? If, upon the abdication, all were reduced to the state of nature, had not apple women and orange girls for the right to give their respective suffrages for a new king as a philosopher, courtier, and politician. Were not those who did not vote in or for the new model of liberty upon the principles of the compact to remain in what some call the delectable state of nature, to which by the hypothesis they were reduced or they to join themselves to any other state whose solemn league and covenant they could subscribe? Is it not the first principle of the original compact that all who are banned should bind themselves? What is used is this, the state of nature, not natural rights, not lock but his notion of the state of nature to radically renegotiate politics, including the form of government, women's rights, universal suffrage, the principle of, of majority rule, and so on and so forth. The next sentence reads, the colonists are by the law of nature freeborn, as indeed all men are, white or black, and by is denunciation of chattel slavery. Everything is up for grabs once the state of nature is in the mix. We are are back to first principles. As you know, the Stamp Act uh, came into force in 1765, and it was issued, uh, the idea was to pay a a very, very small tax on on paper, on most paper products, playing cards, but also uh, documents used in court and this led to tremendous resistance from the colonists. On December 20th, 1765, Adams, Otis, and Gridley teamed up to argue in front of Governor Bernard in Council that the courts must be reopened despite the Stamp Act, which all three refused to recognize as as binding. Their argument was that if taxing the paper that you need to use to go to court is tantamount to the government Stopping the provision of law as a service because it ought to be free. Adams opened with a statement that the Stamp Act violated the colonists' natural and English rights. He expanded out his doctrine of judicial review. Parliament can err. When it does, it must be disobeyed. We are not talking about a judicial review simply conceived anymore. Even, even Parliament can be wrong. To this, Gridley added that depriving individuals of remedy means effectively shutting down the courts, which is tantamount to, quote, a renunciation of government, unquote, in which case the people must return to a state of nature. In fact, the situation was worse, according to Gridley, because the state of nature meant living in the woods with other barbarians, possibly harmoniously. But the Stamp Act dissolved a society that had already bestowed knowledge and skills on its members, thereby making them more dangerous to one another. The next year, the standback was repealed, but Westminster was very clear about the terms in which the debate was conducted. In Parliament, Hans Stanley, Lord Commissioner for the Admiralty, denounced those who in the Stamp Act debate, quote, have reasoned as if the first planters had recovered their state of nature. This doctrine is mischievous to the colonies. Nobody subject can renounce his allegiance, unquote. Now, at this point, as I indicated at the beginning, a new sense emerged. And it's quite extraordinary. Adams and the other revolutionaries, Dennis Debert and Cushing and Samuel Adams as well, started to argue that the American state of nature is stable in itself. It is is the first and so far only good state of nature. They usually started the argument by by noting that much of the North American Continent has not been explored yet and it's not inhabited yet. The parts that are inhabited are tremendously fertile and productive. And the colonists themselves already possess uh, an understanding of the local flora and fauna and the constitutional tradition of their own. These things combined the natural potential with the constitutional wisdom and independence. Suggest that uh, uh, this particular continent has a, a greater So America is going to outgrow and outpace Asia and Europe and so on and so forth. And this is the, the foundation that provides stability for, for the colonists is just nature, American nature itself. The state of nature meant literally. Now, a fascinating set of texts tested imperial legitimacy in, in the wake of successive crises against the standard established by Otis Adams' Bland's and other colonial patriots' view of American state of nature as this peaceful and relatively stable stage of transition from British rule to a pre-political sphere of specifically American sociability capable of legitimating self-government, but not yet in the immediate aftermath of the Stamp Act crisis in a notable notable address to to Governor Thomas Hutchison. The Massachusetts House of Representatives described the failure, failure and breakdown of imperial government followed by a natural order from which a new polity might be formed. Quote, but for many months past there has been an undisturbed tranquility in general in this province and for the greater part of the time merely from a sense of good order in the people while they have been in a great measure deprived of the public tribunals and the administration of justice and so far thrown into a state of nature. To quote uh, an example from Virginia, so we don't only stay in Massachusetts, Richard Bland responded to these Westminster criticisms of the colonial state of nature in wonderfully interesting terms. Uh, Thomas Waitley, Granville, and many Westminster pundits argue that, that the colonists misunderstood the state of nature completely. And if they were right, then practices such as virtue representation in Britain were also unlawful. There are rotten boroughs in Britain, but the system functions perfectly well. Manchester doesn't have enough electoral districts, but, but people in Manchester understand that every single voter in Britain represents the, to- the totality of British interests and not local interests. And they gave, tried to give this crash, this crash course to the colonists about how the state of nature functions and its impact, for instance, on the system of representation. And Bland was delighted. He said, yes, you're absolutely right. Manchester should revolt as well. We are revolting. That's what Manchester should be doing too. And so... They, they, the American state of nature discourse galvanized the English radicals, at which point the governor of Massachusetts, Bernard, dissolved the assembly. This led to riots. The four regiments were sent to Boston. They arrived in October, uh, 1768. And during these months, self-defense, similarly to property earlier, began to be described as a state of nature right that could be transferred and expanded from an individual into a collective state of nature right. You don't find this in Locke. In a way that could be delegated not to the British government, but to American civil society. It's not even a government. It can hold the aggregated individual rights to self-defense because it is a stable state of nature. The concept is working quite hard by, by this point. With the turn to self-defense, the state of nature right of opposing force with force reverted to colonists. And this most wonderful new institution uh, really came into its own, the committees of correspondence. Committees of correspondence could be any size or shape. They could be between two small cities, multiple, multiple states. They could involve 50 people or 50,000. The idea was to, was to have a self-organizing community for discussion. So they can take many shapes. They can rule, they can discuss ecclesiastical matters, but also but also politics. Now, in 1770, Joseph Greenleaf drafted the so-called resolves of Abington to quote that all nations of man that, that dwell upon the face of the whole earth and each individual of them are naturally free. And while in a state of nature, they have a right to do themselves justice when natural rights are invaded. The Abingdon results were circulated widely across the colonies, thanks to the committees of correspondence. And this is the turning point when when proper rebel armed resistance was justified, legally, entirely on state of nature grounds. According to this new notion, this new formulation, that the entity that Britain pushes into the state of nature is not an incoherent mass of colonists anymore, but a nation that already exists and holds rights independently, even though it's not a state yet. The work of the committees of correspondence is best exemplified by the 1772 Boston (laughs) Pamphlet, which ends with the committee's address, to 240 towns to join the cause of Massachusetts. And the call ends to, with the phrase all men have a right to remain in a state of nature as long as they please, and in case of intolerable oppression, civil or religious, to leave the society they belong to and enter into another. some, Adams writes every man in state of nature. Uh, has a has a right to life, liberty and property with the right to support and defend them. So this is one of the most cardinal cardinal texts in the history of the American Revolution and the original drafts show that they, they, they substituted the state of nature a couple of times and settled for the state of society. So while the state of nature features in the text, the first draft is featured even more. cross out the state of nature and settle for the state of civil society become unacceptably unacceptably radical so the drafting history shows the untold role that the state of uh, nature has played but was rejected further down the line at least 144 times replied by the end of summer the summer of 1773 and it's a mag- magnificent set of exchanges much of them are about the state of nature, still undiscovered, still, I mean, not massively underutilized. And they bring in Cicero, Promilona on self-defense and the committees of cor- the work of the committees of correspondence. And this extraordinary discussion across all the colonies also feeds directly into the teaching material of James Wilson, for instance. So you can trace the text as they become embodied and entrenched in the first legal textbooks produced in the colonies. The same year, the Americans finally got around to publishing the first edition of Locke, the only 18th century American edition of John Locke, skips chapter one. It starts with chapter... They just This is supposed to be a sacred text and they don't publish the first chapter, they start with chapter two of the State of Nature. This is the only one they ever publish. Now, These are then quite broadly annotated. For instance, this is a copy from from Philadelphia by Nathaniel Ames, Jr., the son of the famous uh, almanac maker, who also wrote his own essays about the state of nature. And this shows the sheer sophistication of the discourse and the fact that newspapers and college curricula made sure the state of nature discourse is not restricted to a couple of lawyers in boston this was a very very widespread conversation and after this we are straight on to the first continental congress september and october 1774 on day 1 in the afternoon they discuss procedure day 2 begins with the famous scene of patrick henry bursting the doors open walking in and saying i am not a virginian i am an american very well known phrase. His next sentence is We are now in a state of nature with bitter. The first of Congress begins with the state of nature, and the first sessions are almost entirely about the state of nature. So I'm not really going to go into the details of how the Continental Congresses keep addressing the topic in very sophisticated ways. Uh, just two more examples. Uh, up to 1770, uh, sorry right after 1775, the Declaration of Independence. The first is an extraordinary exchange in April 1776 between Frederick Smith, the last Royal Chief Justice of New Jersey, and the grand jury he was instructing about the law. This is a beautiful and extraordinary genre, instructions to a grand jury. You have to rely on the grand jury to, for findings of fact and finding of law. That's the English common law. But they don't know the law. So the, the judge, usually the night before, or often recycling previous instructions, tries to summarize everything. They, they try to summarize the common law, especially, but not only the parts that are relevant to the case. And they read it out to the jury, the case, or, or to the grand jury. And revolutionary instruct, and, and the British government ceases, and the revolution breaks out and you have the Declaration of Independence, In that extraordinary constitutional moment, the everyday practice of redrafting instructions to a grand jury becomes tremendously significant. They don't know know what to say. For for, for the first couple of years, instructions to to grand juries become the most extraordinarily vivacious and imaginative and profound documents I have seen. Frederick Smith is a lawyerist and he He's instructing his jury and tells them that secession and revolution are really bad ideas. And British liberty emerged from the soil. It's a very old Roman idea. In fact, many legal systems have it. British liberty emerged in a moderate and maritime climate and continues to shoot up from Britain's soil before it is extended to the colonies. So if you you cut the connection to Britain, you lose British liberty. Is tied to tied to British soil, historically and legally. Very, very unusually, the jury composes a reply to the judge and offer their own history of American law and argue that there is such a thing as the American state of nature. It's been around for quite a while. The original colonists tamed this land without any British help. They have they have grown tremendously rich and successful and free cities along the coast and then further inland. And American liberty shoots up from American soil and sustains. And what sustains American liberty is the American state of nature. And the jury composes a legal tract in response to Smith, which is most phenomenal thing. Similarly, Benjamin Chu, chief justice of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, writes a set set of grand jury instructions around 1776. And he's he's a revolutionary, more or less. And he argues that the American state of nature is a real thing and it can sustain American liberty. And the last example I'll give is, is the Mohican Indians versus Connecticut. A very complex lawsuit that ran from 1705 to 1773 and was completed by William Samuel Johnson. He describes his strategy to Silas Dean, uh, not founding father. And he argues that the existence of positing an independent American state of nature has allowed him to legally challenge the notion that the native Americans uh, have sold the land to British colonists. And because he could do that, he could then take the land from the Native Americans on behalf of the American colonists. So it's not a particularly benevolent resolution at all. But again, the 70-year-old blue was concluded through the sheer force and application of the state of nature as a new American legal principle. Uh, why does any of this matter? Oh, sorry, and loyalists, Gobe developed a, a, a very, very sophisticated state of nature, this for loyalists that lasted for about a year before they all left for Britain into exile. So I don't want to underestimate the sophistication of the loyalist version of the same. Uh, again, how come you still that? In Obergefellby Hodges' uh, On Gay Marriage, Clarence Thomas's dissent, uh, Justice Thomas analyzed the American tradition of liberty by referring to American state of nature sources, and got every single one of them wrong. He got the citation wrong, he got the publication dates wrong, and he got their meaning, uh, and he got their meaning wrong. He argued that negative liberty is, is the quintessential American version, and that, is, that used to be the loyalist argument. The fact that you can have a self-sufficient, self-sufficient self-sustaining com- natural community that predates the polity is the revolutionary position. And thus, he cycles through the various texts. He systematically mis- misreads them and gets the dates wrong. When the Delaware Supreme Court was asked in 1998 to rule on a life sentence without parole for a reoffending offending burglar. And in the proportionality analysis, they described the right to a residence as an absolute state of nature right. And this recurs in the South Dakota Supreme Court case in State v. Chips and in many, many other cases. And again, these are, these are woefully ahistorical, to say the least. Parents' rights to... to to shape and influence their children's health. is another set of cases where where the state of nature comes up all the time. In Oregon, you have this extraordinary set of cases, starting with smothers, and still going on up to Portland. Oregon has a cap on remedy, and the original argument anchored it in in the state of nature, and went back to the Magna Carta, right? And Smothers was overturned by Lawson, where the argument was that Smothers has misunderstood the legal history of that is relevant to understanding the proper role of the state of nature as a legal principle in American jurisdiction. And Khrushchevsky argued that it shouldn't even matter. And so it overturned Lawson with the argument that histories for historians there's no particular necessity to resist updating an antiquated remedy cap for historical reasons and horton used that argument to reinstate the cap from the cons- for the conservatives taking the Khrushchevsky position that history doesn't matter and refusing the anti-historical argument for an f- to achieve an anti historical outcome. And the back and forth be- between the parties consistently and always returns to what is the correct definition, understanding, and rule of the state of nature, while people who are, who are injured and hurt in, in their place of work or elsewhere depend on the clarity and competence of the court to rule on remedies. And the Animal Legal Defense Fund, you can probably guess, Uses the American state of nature to create a fact against, to, to, to extract uh, ranges of remedies for climate change from American corporations. So that's the, that is the American state of nature uh, story. And sorry, I will try to stop sharing. Now, briefly about the other two projects. One concerns the edited volume that Chris has kindly mentioned. And here we try to bring together practicing lawyers and legal historians, and a couple of literary historians as well. As you saw, the state of nature has been used as effective legal fiction to create a brand new world. And it, it is ubiquitous in many, many elements of, of uh, contemporary jurisprudence. But we thought we ought to test the proposition, that it still has the vitality and the potential to change 21st century law. And so, after the first couple of chapters on legal history, we have chapters on climate change, universal basic income, and a few other current legal problems, where the authors try to use the ingenuity and creativity that their that, that predecessors have displayed to similar effect. And what I'm writing now with Jonis Avriganis is the, the role of the state of nature in Samuel Puffendorf, the first chap to hold a chair in public international law. Historians tend to date the birth of my profession to Samuel Puffendorf here in Heidelberg. And he has a great deal written about him and his use of the state of nature and we think it's it's mostly wrong. He pretends to dislike Hobbes. He borrows from Hobbes a great deal that has been well-established, but we think he understood that Hobbes used the state of nature as a rhetorical device. This is a bit complicated, and the is much better at this, but the basic argument is that if Hobbes tried to tell you to leave the state of nature because it it is frightening, you wouldn't necessarily listen. He has to persuade you, he, 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 he pretends to appeal to your reason, but he's appealing to your emotions in a very, very calculated way. And the only this is the rhetoric of science and the science of rhetoric, and, tries, uh, and identifies compellingly exactly where the science comes from. Not only Quintilian, but 17th century co- cognitive, co- cognitive p- psychology, effectively. Now we think that Puffendorf understood what Hobbes was doing and his, refuta- and his ostensible refutation of Hobbes is, is an endorsement of Ho- Hobbes' method. Puffendorf is using the state of nature in the same way to convince people to leave the state of nature, to become soldiers, to accept punishment, to behave, to conform, and so on and so forth. But he limits the scope of the state of nature because he finds Hobbes' is far too frightening and wide-ranging and he used it in a very narrow technical sense, but also to do other things. One of the great mysteries about Pufendorf is the so-called state system. Our international scholars to this day talk about the English school, Heddy Bull, Edward Keane, and so on and so forth. The Göttingen School from the 18th century as well. They all drew their inspiration from Pufendorf's formulation of a state system. They are states that have a natural affinity to one another through shared history, language, religion, and so on and so forth. They are not simple federations and alliances. Now, Puffendorf insists that the best international relations model for the state of nature in his time is not state state against state in in the pose of, of gladiators as Hobbes would have it, but it is the state systems, right? And we think it is because he has understood the the power of persuasion. State systems can cohere. Kant is wrong. Gufendorf is not naive. It is enough to use the persuasive power of of the state of nature to force just a couple of states with shared histories and shared sensibilities to cohere with reasonable uh, stability. And so we think that Puffendorf's entire state-of-nature system, sorry, Puffendorf's entire state-system state notion, which is tremendously influential well, well into the 20th century, is a direct adaptation of Hobbes's idea of, of the rhetorical power of the state of nature. So yeah, I, I, I hope that was more or less clear. And then obviously, since my 2,500 years turned into 15 years, in the fullness of time, I would like to write parts 2, 3, and so on and so forth. So the great constitutional experiments of the seven, starting in 1780, when every colonist was taught to go home and and, and start discussing a constitution for your own state, an incredible wave of constitution writing is beyond the scope of this of this first book. And if somebody else wants to write it, I'll, I'll stand down. Otherwise, somebody has to. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Mark. Please join me in uh, uh, expressing uh, huge thanks there uh, for such a a, a rich presentation, ranging over all three projects. And I'm sure that there's a um, there's a lot that we all want to ask. I I might ask the first question, and as I do, can I encourage uh, others present if there is a question that you'd like to ask to uh, just uh, jot it down quickly in the chat, and then I'll invite you to uh, to ask it uh, in person uh, afterwards. Um, Now. Mark, I let let's dive in at the idea that you mentioned about halfway through there that the state of nature gives rise to legal claims that are very different, uh, difficult to reconcile. I think was was the way that you put it, and I I wonder that that led me to thinking: is there anything in the state of nature idea itself? and I know that 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 itself is a strange formulation that you you may want to push back against, Uh, that predisposes it towards a particular sort of use, or or is it really radically all the way down a a blank canvas that, that people put to all manner of ideological ends in a way that that doesn't sort of predispose say a, a conservative or a progressive reading that, you know, it's, it's been used to, um, to support the colonial enterprise. It's been used to undermine the colonial enterprise. Is, is there anything in the state of nature that predisposes it in your opinion to one of these things rather than another?
1: That is, a, that is an excellent question. I, I, I can't answer it. I, I, I have the, a... I have elements of the answer, but but not the actual answer. So firstly, the the sources suggest that you can use it for anything and and they did. The loyalist version was extremely sophisticated and, uh, and Adams's party used very questionable and aggressive methods to exclude all of those senses. And also the occasional jokes, which were terrible. So you have have these jokes from Philadelphia, when when Adams is coming down the stairs and meets someone and says, oh, you are another delegate. I I haven't met met you yet. Which state are you from? And the other delegate says, from from the state of nature. And then Hobbes said, well, then, then, then you are damned. Because being in a state of nature in the 1770s was also used to us as a synonym for hell as a state of nature, a state of sin. So, Sorry, the, the, the range of texts suggests that it could, could be used for anything and politics won at the end of the day when it came to narrowing down and nailing down the, the established semantic range of the state of nature. However, the very fact that the state of nature was used in so many senses, and you have described them admirably, you you cover them better than anybody anybody else has seen. It can be nature, it can be nudity, it can be hell, sin, heaven. The un- untamed condition of an island or an animal species, could, what we described as a state of nature, means that some... Uh, meanings that emerge from the simultaneous utilization of more than one semantic range will lean in one direction inevitably. So the easiest way is to use a Venn diagram. If you have, if you have 12 different possible meanings from heaven to property, so some of these will, will overlap and, and many of the texts will fit into these overlaps and I, I, have, I have offered several texts that, that fit into a very particular overlap between them. Now, the fact that, that the sheer power of nature and, mankind, and humanity's responsibility for nature is, is one of these sets of main meanings will tend to encourage even legal use of the state of nature to be mindful of the environment. It is very hard. It, it, it is not impossible, but it's more difficult to use, use the term with legal effect if you are going to ignore the environment completely. So there are built, built-in trends and points of narrowing just given the, the, the range of meanings, if, if that makes any sense. But it is inherently quite flexible. It yeah. does resist some combinations.
0: Yeah, that's really, really helpful. Thank you um i i guess i guess that leads to to another observation which perhaps should have i should have asked first which is why regardless of how it is used why do you think that the state of nature motif has such purchase why is it referred to so often in these legal arguments as if it were a, a, a sort of a um a, a way of of winning an argument in itself almost you know it seems that a, ref, a reference to the state of nature is, is is often put forwards as you know well this this should settle the matter and and you know the response that you've given just shows that it it does anything but it is used for so many different ends you know is it is it the the influence of of Hobbes is it the theological antecedents in the same way that you know referring to to Adam and Eve and the fall might be seen to 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 sort of clinch certain theological debates, is it that move that's being made? Why, in in the particular period that that you were looking at in, in in that wonderful book of yours, why are people so often going back to this idea? Do you think what what are they what are they seeing in it? What are they intuiting
1: in it? Again, excellent question above my pay grade to 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 be honest, but the. So, well, sometimes people are, are tired of the, of the dead ends that, they, that the use of old ideas have led them to. Mm-hmm. And natural rights are, are, are the most obvious example. So state of nature rights trump natural rights. State of nature rights are, are in, alien, alienable, mm-hmm. according to numerous sermons and many of the texts that I've cited, while natural rights are negotiable. And, and domestic law can override them and can, and can constrain them. But the, the... So, on the one hand, just looking for new solutions, need need for innovation because the whole system breaks down. And secondly, obviously, partisanship and bringmanship and just trying to sail as close to the wind as possible in constructing legal arguments. But also aspiration. The, th- the third thing that I have found quite often is 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 an aspect of law that's very, very hard to codify. Mm. So a- equity is supposed to correct the common law. When you are right, but I am wrong, but I'm poor, the judge will say, let's, let's, let's try to find room for equity here. Mm. Equity is supposed to correct the Roman law. Similarly, state of nature rights and the law inherent in the state of nature that is not natural law is often invoked for, for aspirational purposes. One of my favorite cases is, is Blackstone. Blackstone is extraordinary. He said that there are absolute rights and relative rights. Absolute ju- they, they correspond to absolute duties and relative duties or obligations in m- more contemporary sense. Now, the individual, individuals amongst each other, are, are responsible for, to, for honoring. Uh, Relative rights and relative duties. An individual to the state must observe relative duties, but the state owes absolute rights to the individual, which makes absolutely no sense. Blackstone puts the state in in an impossible position. And the argument is that, so it's a state of nature argument. Blackstone says that absolute rights derive from the state of nature individuals are only going to leave the state of nature for the polity if their rights don't diminish. Everyone before Blackstone was happy to argue that you have to give up some of your state of nature rights to enter the polity, and it will protect you, not not for Blackstone. The state must always consistently strive to, to guarantee state of nature rights, even though it evidently cannot. But that is how the law evolves. That's how it improves. That is the engine of the common law. The energy of the communal is the aspiration to provide a state of nature rights, even while only asking for, for relative, r- relative duties. So this, this will be three, three just casuistry, uh, aspiration, and the third thing that I have not forgotten such <laughs> that's
0: a beautifully constructed answer to what was i think a, a somewhat rambling question thank you thank you so much um, look i i do have another question but i'm i'm keen if, if if anyone else wants to jump in at this point i've been monopolizing mark uh, so far it's an,
1: it's an excellent excellent question in the comment oh i haven't seen
0: that you you can you read it out there mark who, who was asking uh-huh. it and
1: uh, Michael Michael Vincent asks there seems to be a tension in the revolutionist claim that one we can choose our community from from the state of nature and two there is an american community pre-existing us at least the default was it a point of contention so it's a, it's a very very smart and sophisticated question and, and yes they the the some of the greatest writers in london just really let rip so you, you, have, you have extraordinary theorists writing 200 pages about this particular contradiction in the colonist discourse. And, and it was very much a case of casuistry. So, so there's a very large number of contradictions in the colonial state of nature discourse that is never resolved. Slavery is one. Everyone is free everyone is equal, therefore I can succeed without, without honoring my obligations to Britain. Also, I'm, I, I have slaves. So the other thing that, that Westminster writers made, made fun of, and try to, try to use the point that you, that you made in the same way, to argue that the colonists are stupid. So they, they're, they're, the, the legal arguments are incoherent. So this, this you're, you're absolutely right. I mean that—that that, that was a contradiction that they picked up on and tried to put it to, to try to create legal effect around it.
0: Thank you very much, um, Mark. That was a really, uh, really great sport talk. I, um, I really enjoyed it and learned a lot. I, I had no idea about all this stuff at the uh, the American Revolution, so um, uh, I'm I'm very interested in this. So I'm keen to look into the into the book and pick out some of those examples and that. So thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much for, for for bearing with me and for and and for the excellent question. Thank you.
0: Wonderful. Mark. I, I wonder if I might ask what, one more that relates to something that you said really early on in in your presentation. Uh, I think you were de- describing a legal fiction in general, and you you used the example of "Let there be light." So one, it's almost a performative utterance. The 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 producers that of which it speaks. Um, And, and I think I'm persuaded by that. And and I, I'm just wanting to to push that a step further in a sense and say, well, is, is there, while that is certainly the case legally, that it brings into being this, this legal entity, Mm -hmm. does there not also have to be a sense in which this is precisely not the same sort of creation as let there be light, not, not an ex nihilo creation, but there has to be some intuitive resonance. The state of nature has to make sense to people in order for it to, to have traction as a legal concept. There has to be something in the, in the zeitgeist, in the social imaginary, however one wants to put it, that that this legal concept is able to exploit and make make use of. In in its own particular domain, and and I guess I'm just wanting to to explore, in a sense, what what that might be. Um, what what is it that this legal concept, do you think, is is meeting with that that gives it, um, the 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 intuitive plausibility that 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 it has legally. And again, you know, it may be, um, there there may be part of an answer to that that that's theological it may be you know how, but i'm i'm just trying to um trying to think what is it borrowing what is it reappropriating do you think um
1: yeah thank you thank you to mix things up i don't have the answer to, to this one either but the the i think it's freedom first and foremost second is, it's frustration with government people mm. people People who have never been in government don't know how little it can do and how badly it does that little that it can do. So people expect solutions from government that it it, it usually cannot provide, especially Westminster in in the 18th century. So they think that this is the highest standard that they can invoke and, and power to them. There's nothing wrong with the thought process. But another part of the I would like to come to, to, to lexical to the lexical approach. If you just run a Google book search for the state of nature, which is going to ignore all the archives that I've cited, but you will still get a, a sense that one of the most prominent meanings was, was nudity in, in erotic fiction. 18th century erotic fiction is a huge source of state of nature references that have very, very little legal, legal implication, frankly. And so the the inherent intuitive appeal is just shedding artifici- artificiality that shows up in these in these forms such as books for animal breeders that say you see the sheep you 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 would like to you would like to breed a better sheep but the way to be the better sheep is to understand where the sheep came from so let us pause it an, an agricultural fiction of, um, of the original sheep, right? Same with, same with coastal defenses and building seawalls around the island. You, you see the rate of deterioration. You see, you see what the sea is doing to the, to the coast. The question is not how to stop this, but you have to reverse engineer what the island used to look like in a state of nature. Mm-hmm. So you would understand where future erosion is going to take place. And sorry. and the third and last part of the answer is that the legal, the, the, at least in the, during the American revolution, the, the American reading public, no, the the American public was tremendously receptive to the legal sense and they were extremely precise. So students' orations were often published in the newspaper and circulated. Adams' speeches, Many of these documents were circulated. The committees of correspondence involved many, many, many people, and you have these extraordinary uh, scenes. When, like Lancaster, Massachusetts, early 1765, or sorry, uh, early 1766, uh, they somebody complains to the court that he cannot repay a debt to his friend because of the Stamp Act. He wants to pay his friend, but. Everybody's telling him, he's reading in the newspaper because of the state, the stamp act threw us back into a state of nature, I cannot repay my friend. So the British authorities send out out the police, they send out the sheriffs and they find everyone in the pub, and they round them up and they say, just pay the debt, like what's wrong with you? And the good people of Lancaster start beating the police, right, because they're very upset about that they are now in a state of nature, legally speaking. Then they stop, put the sheriff and his assistants on chairs in, in the center of the, of the pub, and they had a constitutional debate. There's got to be like 40 people in the whole, whole of Lancaster at this point. And then they, and the, and the sheriff says, this is about my pay grade, so they start beating each other again, and they run <laughs> away. And then Joseph Hawley and a couple of lawsuits that arise from this case because then they get, they get fined, someone disputes the fine, and Joseph Hawley, a wonderful major general and excellent lawyer, chooses this somewhat risky legal strategy of defending his client by arguing that either they were right and they were in a state of nature, so they don't have to pay the minimum, minimum fine, or if they were wrong and they are traitors and they must be hanged, which is not a strategy I recommend if you are, if you are defending someone but that's the one that he went for. And he got disbarred and someone else took took, took the case over. But the fact that you have these extraordinary scenes of, of reams and reams of newspaper columns filled up by the detailed reconstruction of the discussion they had in the pub, halfway through the fisticuffs with the local police about the state of nature, really suggests that, that, that locals were very receptive to the, to the sophisticated parts of the argument as well. Mm. Sorry.
0: <laughs> a wonderful anecdote. How implausible <laughs> that such a thing should have happened. Um, we, we, we're getting close to the time where we're going to have to draw stumps, but we haven't quite got there yet. So if anyone does have a, a final question to offer, now would be a, a wonderful time uh, to ask that. And uh, if no one is forthcoming, um, then uh, just before we we say thank you to, to Mark for tonight, let me remind everybody that our next seminar is on the 13th of September, uh, and Sarah Winter of the University of Connecticut, Department of English, uh, is going to be uh, uh, speaking uh, to the title, From Natural Equality to Frank Pledge, uh, The State of Nature, Ancient Constitutionalism, and the rupture of the social contract in 18th century anti-slavery writings. And uh, Sarah is one of the contributors to the uh, book that, that that Mark co-edited, uh, that excellent book on the state of nature that's really worth uh, digging up and reading for anyone with an interest in the subject as well. Um, so Mark, for for someone who said that, that you don't have answers to the questions, I think you are particularly rich and um, insightful uh, and uh, uh, the sort of answers that, that, that lead us on to further tracks of thinking. So we're incredibly grateful uh, for your time. I gather that you're traveling on to Paris later today, so we wish you safe travels, um, and uh, please do join with me everybody in thanking uh, Mark Somers today.
1: Thank you, thank you very much. Uh, uh, thank you for the invitation, uh, thank you for this opportunity, and thank you for the questions and for and for bearing with me. <laughs> thank you, thank you very much. Thank you.